welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, for so that you will not fall under condemnation. This is the reading of God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. As we get near the end of the book of James here, we're so thankful for the treasure you've given us in this book. And we pray, Lord, this morning that you would speak to your people, that you would give us life in your word, or that you would open our eyes to see beautiful things in your word. We pray, Lord, for you to, uh, to make uh, effective that new covenant promise that you will give your people new hearts and put within them a new spirit and cause them to know you in a deeper way and to obey your word in a way that that wasn't normal under the Old Covenant, but is normal in the New Covenant. We just pray, Lord, that you would do that. We pray, Lord, that you would scrape away hardness of hearts, Lord. We pray that you would disrupt people this morning, Lord, as they're maybe kind of become spiritually kind of in a haze and just drifting, Lord, that you would wake them up, Lord, to the glory of who you are and where they are in your world, in the kingdom, in, in the plan that you're moving forth in this world. And we, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless the offerings today, both of time and treasure and talents, Lord. We pray that you would cause our giving to, um, to be used in a bountiful way, an eternal way, Lord, that, that there would be things that we get to rejoice in in eternity because of the giving um, of our offerings, Lord. We, um, we pray for those who are giving their, their gifts today, all the different gifts that are manifested as we gather. We pray, Lord, that you would cause the full spectrum of your gifts to occur in this place, Lord, over these next uh, couple hours, and um, Lord, during the service and after the service. And Lord, we pray that you'd feed us. Feed our faith, Lord. Feed our faith in your word. Feed our faith at your table, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, that you would give all glory to your Son and not to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In James here, we're seeing a really dramatic change in tone. I don't know if you guys were here last week or you could just read the passage right before. The passage before is accusatory. Very accusatory, very uh, convicting, very coming at you. It's an accusatory type passage. This passage is more of a warm kind of pastoral passage. And it's one of the things that's great about James is the variety. The variety of tone, the variety of illustrations, the variety of food that God gives us in his word here is just amazing. The big idea here, though, guys, is in verse 7 where he says, Be patient. 
brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. He's saying, be patient until the coming of Christ. And, and you might ask, well, what do I need patience for? Why, why is he saying that I need to be patient? And, and I've got one word for you why we need to be patient, and that word is suffering. Okay, And we see that in verse 10. He talks about the suffering of the prophets. And in verse 11, he talks about Job's suffering. We need patience in suffering. Do you feel like you need patience this morning in suffering? Do you feel like you need patience in suffering? If you don't, you will. You will, guys, because life is suffering. It's suffering. You guys go, wow, okay, this is fun. It's a fun way to start. It's true, though, guys. It's true. The Bible's never tried to hide from us that life is suffering. And any sort of, you know, church environment or teaching environment that tries to downplay suffering and that God wants you to be, you know, blessed and happy and everything to go well and, you know, your whole life to be unicorns that are, you know, living on rainbows and stuff like that is not teaching the Bible. Because the Bible talks consistently and helpfully on suffering. Our culture is not helpful on suffering. Our culture has two tactics. We can either deny it, kind of ignore that it's a reality, and then when it happens, we can medicate, okay? So it's denial or medicate. Those are the two options in our culture. But the scriptures, guys, never hide from us that life is suffering and give us very realistic ways to deal with it. And so you need patience. We're all going to need patience in suffering, whether it's right now or it's coming, but we're going to need it. Where do we get it? Look at verse 8. I love what verse 8 says. He says, you also be patient, establish your hearts. Some of your translations might say strengthen. That word for establish your heart there is a word that means to strengthen or to even feed. You know that you might strengthen your body by feeding it. He's saying that we develop patience by establishing our hearts, by strengthening our hearts, by feeding our hearts. You know the book of James is about what living faith looks like. And one of the things that living, alive, healthy faith looks like is patience, right? Patience is a fruit of a healthy faith life. Patience is what strong faith looks like. Impatience is what weak faith looks like. And he gives us two examples in here of weak faith. One's in verse 9, which is like irritability. That's an example of weak faith, impatience because of weak faith. And the other one's in verse 12, which is unfaithfulness. And we'll get to those. But verse 8 is telling us that we need to actually feed our hearts. We need to feed our faith. It's your responsibility to feed your faith. Did you realize that? It's like when you're a kid and you got a pet. It's your responsibility to feed the pet, right? And a lot of us think that maybe it's somebody else's responsibility or that somehow our faith will feed itself. But it's like you have a pet and you're not feeding it if you're not feeding your faith. And so we're called to feed it. What does faith eat? How do we feed it? James shows us in verses 7 through 11. What we feed it is we feed it grace, Your faith, your heart is strengthened by, fed by, strengthened by grace. That's what it eats. That's what makes your faith stronger. You need to strengthen your faith by feeding it grace constantly. Okay? And there's two types of grace that you could feed your faith on. One would be past grace. You have things like the, he's redeemed us, that he's called us to himself. That's past grace. And then there's future grace, things that God has promised to do in the future. Um, I've got a diagram, actually. I'm not going to draw this because it would be, like, really complicated, and I'd write really small, and there'd be all kinds of complaints. But um, I did draw this myself, just in case you were wondering if this was professionally done. Um, what we have here is a diagram, and, and what I want to show you here is that there's both past grace and future grace. 
And so past grace would be things like God chose you in eternity past before he made the world. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian today because God in eternity past chose to adopt you. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That's past grace. You know, that's something you could feed your faith, right? You feed your faith that all day long, right? God in time redeemed you. He sent Christ to the cross and resurrection and ascension. God redeemed you. That's past grace. God regenerated you. At some point in your life, you're a Christian. God came into your life, and he caused you to become alive to him, and he gave you this living faith that is now your responsibility to feed that through regeneration. That's a past grace, right? And then we've got future grace. These are things that God is going to do by his grace for you because you're trusting in Christ, such as God will transform you. He's going to transform you over time. He's already engaged in that. He's going to continue to do that through your life. He's going to transform you by grace. He's going to persevere you by grace. He is going to come at some point and return for you and cause all your suffering to end by grace. This is all future grace, right? He is going to resurrect you and glorify you. When I say glorify, he's going he's to give you a new glorified body that no longer sins, no longer has a desire to sin, but perfectly loves him and others, right? He's going to resurrect you and glorify you, and that's by grace. And then he's going to make the world new by grace. It's all grace, right? You got past grace, you got future grace. And here's you in the middle right now, and I've got a little fire underneath you because this life is about suffering, right? And you all are going to kind of, you got them right under his feet here, right? That you're going to go through suffering. What do you do here to feed and strengthen your faith? As, and what you do is you've got to feed yourself grace, guys, constantly. You've got to feed yourself on grace. And you might be here and not a Christian this morning. You're like, how do I get in on this? Like, this sounds good. So you're saying, I could be surrounded by grace? I could have all this past grace? I could have all this future grace? How do I get this? And the answer is simple. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And what it means to be saved is to have your sins forgiven, made right with God, and be the recipient of all this grace. Isn't that amazing? Jesus purchased that for you. You could have that today. There's no need for anyone to walk out those doors, get in their car, and drive away without receiving all this grace. Isn't that crazy? It's amazing. But there's more. No, there is more. But So here we are in the present. We're between past and future grace. Your faith is being tested, right? There's suffering. Let's think about some suffering that you might be enduring right now. What are some ways that your faith could be tested right now? And I'm going to go through a list. How about chronic pain? We do show of hands. Chronic pain. What about chronic painful relationships? You probably don't want to raise your hand on that one. It could be awkward, but just raise your hand in your heart. Failing health, right? You don't have it now, you'll have it eventually. I know I'm all fun. Chronic temptation, that's definitely a suffering. Chronic temptation, some temptations that chronically hound us. Financial pain, uh, loss of a loved one. You know, someone you love, you lost them. I know we have lots of that in this room. Um, work stress, your kid, maybe school stress. Um, persecution, people really deal with persecution. There's a few people I know in this room that have dealt with legit persecution. Um, mental health pain, you know, maybe your physical body's fine, but mentally you're not fine. Uh, deal with depression, anxiety, you know, bipolar, all kinds of, you know, mental health type pain. Guys, life is suffering. Scriptures don't hide, us, hide that from us, but what they do do is they give us great ways to have comfort and joy in the midst of suffering, amen? And the way you do it is by gobbling up grace, okay? Every day you want to be thinking about the grace of God, and consuming that and feeding your heart that. That's why we read the Bible every day. 
You guys realize you're not reading the Bible every day so that like God's in heaven and he's giving you a check mark. Like, okay, you did it. This It's not to earn anything. It's not out of duty. What is it out of? It's out of delight. You know, we get in the Word so that we can get ourselves happy in God, so that we can feed our faith on grace, right? So we can be as happy in God because there's a lot of difficulty out there to deal with in this world, and we need as much as possible to feed that faith, right? We need this. That's why we read the Word. That's why we gather and worship. That's why we encourage one another. That's why we're doing all this is we're feeding our faith grace. And we wonder sometimes, guys, don't we? We wonder why, like in verse 9, it's, we can be so irritable with each other. We wonder why we can be so unfaithful to each other. But the, the fact of the matter could be, and I think you want to examine yourself this morning, perhaps you're not feeding your faith. You're like that kid that was given a hamster. Parents, don't do this. Don't give a pet to a kid and then, you know, just see how it goes. Right? It's not fair to the animal. It will go 100% terribly. But you're, you might be, you know, you're like this kid where you're like, hey, daddy, my hamster doesn't look so good. You're like, well, honey, have you fed it? No. Okay, well, that's why it's like limp. That's why it's, you know, looking like, that's why it doesn't run in the little wheel, right? Is because you're not feeding it. And I think that's where a lot of us are with our faith. We wonder why we're so irritable, so unfaithful, so, you know, down. And our faith is so weak, it's we need to feed it. And so James here gives us three tasty slices of future grace. Okay, the grace that he gives us to think about in our suffering, this passage is all on this side. It's all future grace, right? And he gives us three tasty slices. Here's the first one. Future grace number one. God will make precious fruit from your suffering. Look at the farmer. Look at verse seven. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Isn't that awesome? Your faith, guys, um, needs to be fed by the truth, by the future grace of that God is going to make precious fruit from your suffering. God's going to make precious fruit from it. That's what he's talking about here with the farmer, right? That suffering you endure right now, trusting God, God is going to make something wonderful out of it. You guys remember in the beginning of James? James started this way. James started this way. In James 1, 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's precious fruit. That's what you want your life to to have. It's called Christ-likeness. That's what you want from your life. Don't you want precious fruit from your life? You, know, you want at the end of your life to have known that God made something precious out of your life. He's making Christ-likeness. Guys, God's future grace means that you are not fragile. You're anti-fragile. Talked about this a few months ago. You are anti-fragile. Fragile is suffering hits you and it destroys you. Think like a ceramic vase or vase, depending on who you are. You're fragile, right? And I think in our culture, wouldn't you admit that culturally right now, people tend to believe they're fragile. You know, they're very afraid of, you know, somebody's going to offend me, somebody's going to do something, I'm fragile, don't break me. Okay, you're not fragile. Durable would be that suffering doesn't change you. So fragile is suffering destroys you. Durable is suffering doesn't change you. It's like a boulder. You whack on it all day, nothing happens. That's durable. You're neither fragile nor durable in Christ. You're anti-fragile, which means that suffering makes you better. Suffering makes you better. That's what James is saying. Suffering makes you better. Things that are anti-fragile are usually things that are alive, right? Like muscle. You tear muscle, they're working out. It gets bigger, it gets stronger. The damage makes it stronger. You're anti-fragile in Christ. 
The immune system, same way. You challenge it with some sort of you know, harmful thing, it gets stronger. It gets antibodies. You, because of the grace of God, guys, are anti-fragile. Suffering will not destroy you. Suffering is going to produce precious fruit in you, and that precious fruit is Christ-likeness. And I just want to ask you this morning, if you're suffering, if you're in a difficult place right now, I want to ask you, is there anything you wanted more than Christ-likeness out of this life? Is there anything you wanted more? This suffering that you're enduring right now is giving you the thing you always wanted, which is to be like Christ. It might not look like it right now, but the promise here is like the farmer. Wait until the harvest, until it gets its, its early and its late rains. And you might ask, like, man, my suffering seems to go on and on. And there are some people in our church that's like, man, another thing? Like, this person really gets it over and over again. What's going on? You know, you might ask yourself, why does this suffering keep coming? And I think there's an answer in verse 7. He says, be patient until it receives the early and the late rain. We have to assume if our suffering is continuing, it needs further rain, right? There's a crop of Christ-likeness. There's a precious fruit that he's working in your life. And apparently, and God would know better than we would, that it needs more rain and more time to get a full harvest. And so persevere. Think about the farmer who's patient. James interjects here with a, with a, a, a weakness of faith in verse 9. What does it look like when our faith is weak? And it looks like irritability. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So practical, guys. So practical for this be in the midst of suffering, right? Because, guys, when we suffer, when we have hardship, when we have pain, we tend to turn on each other, right? Like an injured dog. Maybe you're taught as a kid, like, hey, if you see a dog that's injured, don't just run up and grab it, right? You're going to get bit. It's the same with people. It's the same with us. When we're hurt, when we're injured, when we're suffering, we tend to bite the people that are closest to us. Whether it's our family members, you know, or whether it's our church, we tend to be like that. Married people, you guys tend to forget. I tend to forget. We're on the same team, right? We tend to attack one another when we have a problem. So practical. He says, he says that don't blame and judge each other when you're suffering. James says the judge is standing at the door. Judge is standing at the door. We don't want to be found. Right? We don't want to be found in a situation where we're judging each other when the judge arrives. Right? It's like when you're a kid, right? And you're fighting with your brother or sister, and you hear the, the car lock. You're like, okay, time to stop. Right? And you hear the keys rattling. You're like, okay, time to stop. Guys, we don't want to be caught at the time when the Lord returns that we're like biting and devouring each other, right? I mean, he is right at the door, and which means that the solution to our suffering, guys, is right at the door. Christ returns, removes all suffering, right? And, and, it's, and we live, guys, in the last times, in the last days. It says in two places. He said in verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, he's standing at the door. The clever thing that the Lord does, though, he didn't tell us how long the days are. I think this is very clever. People are like, oh, that seems like, you know, it seems like a problem. It's not a problem. It's part of the design. <laughs> <laughs> we're in the last days. All of the very important things have already occurred. Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, Pentecost. From there on, we live in the last days. We don't know how long the days are. This is very clever of our Father to do it this way. Guys, the keys are always rattling in the door. Okay? And so we want to we live as if he could be back at any time because he could be. We live in a time, guys, where he's at the door. We also live in a time... Speaking of the grumbling and being irritable, we live in a time when our culture is becoming more and more divided, isn't it? This is going to be a good year for that. 
I'm not on social media. I don't care. I'm having a great time. <laughs> and I hardly look at the news, so like I'm in bliss. I have a huge performance advantage over you guys this year. No social media and really boring news source. I'm a, you're going to be like, how's he get so much done? That's how. It's going to be awesome. And do you guys know that there have been studies, if you quit social media within four days, you'll be 40% happier? Yeah. Your essential oil can't do that. <laughs> if I could sell something that could do that, you would buy it up for me like crazy, and you could do it for free today. So anyway, but we live in a time... <laughs> We live in a time, guys, when our culture is getting more and more divided, and Christians are too. We're getting caught up in this cultural thing. We're isolating ourselves due to technology and irritability, and we're cutting ourselves off from one another, and you see that. How many Christians do you know in our valley that are not a part in any way of any church? They may go occasionally, but they're not organically connected to a church family. What's going on there? We're actually cutting ourselves off. And it's a vicious cycle because our weak faith makes us irritable. Our irritability makes us isolate from each other. God's designed the church to be one of the ways your faith is strengthened. And so the cycle just gets worse and worse, right? Um, Hebrews 10 says this, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's funny because, like, we think because of technology and stuff that we don't need to gather as much, you know, because we have teaching we can get online and you know, we can get worship music and all this stuff. We can text each other. What does this passage say? More and more as the day draws near. We need it more. Guys, we are the end times people of God. We are going to need each other, right? Future grace number two. I love this one. Verse 10. God will speak through your suffering. God will speak through your suffering. Look at verse 10. Look at the prophets. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. God spoke through these Old Testament prophets, and it was hard to be an Old Testament prophet. You might think, like, sounds like a good job, no heavy lifting. Actually, it was not a good job, right? Because it was brutal. Nobody wanted to hear from God. They were constantly being persecuted. Zechariah, we know, was stoned to death. Jeremiah was beaten. He was put in stocks. He was bound in chains. He was imprisoned in a dungeon. He was thrown in a dry, not all in one day. He was thrown in a dry well. I mean, this guy was like brutalized, right? Think of John the Baptist, you know, the last of the prophets was beheaded. And yet, look at how God spoke through their lives, right? Guys, God will speak through your suffering as well. The way that you're right now trusting in God in the, in the furnace of affliction shows where true joy is found. Your life of suffering is a testimony of the value of Christ. You just realize that? You say, well, not me. Yes. You say, well, you know, I don't know that anybody even knows what I'm going through. The angels know, right? There's a huge audience all the time of your suffering and how you hold fast to Christ. You are showing in the furnace of affliction right now that Christ is better than riches. He's better than health. He's better than a sound mind. He's better than an easy family life. He's better than comfort. He's better than success. Your life, as you suffer and you hold fast to Christ, your life is saying, you can have all that, give me Jesus. There's a song like that, right? But your life is that song. I mean, anybody can sing it. You're doing it. As you're holding fast to Christ, you're saying, you can have all that, give me Jesus. All I need is him. And guys, I just say, do you have a better use for your life? David talked about last week, a wonderful sermon. He was talking about life is a vapor. Your life is super short. 
wouldn't it be worth it to even if it ended up a slightly shorter if it was a light to the world of the value of Christ? There's some better plans for your life? I mean, this is amazing, right? David Pallison, who's a wonderful biblical counselor and author, he passed away last year from pancreatic cancer, and I'd recommend all his books are awesome. And when he first got his diagnosis, he reacted the way we would, right? We said, why me? Why this? Why now? Very natural, very reasonable. We'll all have those questions. But I love where he landed. In his final book, he said this, why not me? Why not this? Why not now? He's talking about his pancreatic cancer. If in some way my faith might serve as a three-watt nightlight in a very dark world, why not me? If my suffering shows forth the Savior of the world, why not me? Isn't that amazing? God will speak through your faithful suffering just like he did the prophets. Your life is testifying that perfect joy is found in Christ and that he's right at the door. Isn't that amazing? You think about other suffering. Would it be worth it, guys, to live faithfully in a difficult marriage for 50 years if your life is a light to the worth of Christ? It would be. We're just thinking about life all wrong, aren't we? We're just thinking about what we could get in this life. He's saying your life could speak for more. Your life could speak through your sufferings. Third uh, future grace. God will reverse your suffering. Look Look at Job. Look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So at first, Job seems like a really reasonable example to use because he's like the quintessential sufferer, right? He is a strange example of patience, though. I don't know if you noticed that. I didn't notice that at first. It was like a few days in that I'm like, He's an interesting example of patience. He's a, he's a very clear example of suffering. I mean, Job lost in one day all of his livestock. He lost all of his kids. He lost his health. And then his wife, was her faith was unraveling right in front of him. And I know a lot of people are like, you know, they, like, they beat up on Job's wife. Every time I can, I defend Job's wife. She lost all her kids that day. And her husband's covered in boils. And her faith's unraveling. And yours would too. And so here he is, Job. He's lost everything. He's lost all ten of his kids. He's covered in boils. And the person that he really needs to be tight with, her faith is unraveling. Like this is a bad situation, right? This is the the lowest of situations. And so Job is a great example of suffering. But of patience, he's kind of a strange example because Job did complain a lot. We have it all written down. Wouldn't it be interesting if all yours were written down? You know, there was the book of Dave, and, you know, there was, you know, 30 chapters of complaining Dave, you know, or not just Dave. It could be any of you. But, guys, Job is a great example of patience because though he complained, he never gave up. I mean, that guy held on to God. He wrestled with God. And when you wrestle, you hold on tight. He wrestled with God through this whole thing. He would not let go of the Lord, even if it looked like the Lord was letting go of him. But the more important reason to bring up Job is actually in the end of verse 11. It's actually not about what Job did. It's about what God did. Take a look at verse 11. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Isn't that interesting? So the example of Job is really to highlight God's action in this suffering. This word purpose, purpose of the Lord, it's the word telos, and it means outcome or end. So what he's saying is, in Job's suffering, what we see is we see the end or outcome or purpose 
of God. And what did we see in the end of Job's life? In the end of Job's life, we see, just like the passage says, God's compassion and his mercy. Because, guys, suffering was not the end of Job's story. And it won't be the end of yours either. Isn't that amazing? Suffering was not the end of Job's story. Do you remember what happened in the end? The Lord was merciful. He was compassionate, just like this passage says, and reversed all of Job's suffering. Take a look at, well, you don't have to look, but I'll just tell you. Job 42, 12 says this. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. Um, what you'll notice there, if you compare that to the beginning of the book, is that it's doubled, right? Everything's doubled. Well, not everything. What's not doubled? His kids, right? His kids don't get doubled, which is interesting. You, people go like, okay, why aren't the kids doubled if you're doubling everything? Well, first answer is you can't replace kids. You don't just double them and things are fine, right? But the more profound answer, guys, is that Job still had them. Job still has his kids. You say, Where? His kids were awaiting him in the resurrection. And Job knows that, which is crazy because Job lived probably around Abraham's time or earlier. And Job knew about the resurrection. In Job 19, verse 25, Job says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. And with my own eyes I will behold, not with another. My heart faints within me. Isn't that amazing? That way back then, Job knew about the resurrection. And so God does not double his kids because, he, well, he did double his kids. Because his first ones were not lost. He was going to get them back in the resurrection. Guys, especially for you who have endured suffering like that, it is quite impossible for you to lose anything to suffering in the end. Because of the resurrection. Isn't that amazing? Because of the resurrection. Be patient. God will reverse all your losses just like he did Job. And there's a second way. It's interesting how this is all laid out. There's a second way that he shows what weak faith looks like. And it's in verse 12. Take a look at it. A faith that's weak and needs to be fed looks like unfaithfulness to each other. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you will not fall under condemnation. So, I don't know if you've read this passage before, but this verse seems to come out of nowhere. Okay? It's like you're driving down the road, you're like, whoa, where'd that guy come from? I mean, it's that kind of a verse. Doesn't seem to connect to the section before. Doesn't seem to connect to the section after. It's like, what's this doing here? But I think it does connect, and that's why I included it with this one. I think it connects to the passage before, and here's how. Think about it. What's the big deal about oaths? Don't swear an oath. Well, an oath should not be necessary for, to people who know you, right? Like, it's fine to swear an oath, and the Anabaptists were like, oh, you can't swear an oath in court and things like that. No, no. It's fine to swear an oath that people don't know you. You got a military oath, you got a professional oath, you got oath in a courtroom, things like that. That's all fine to do. Those people don't know you, they need an oath from you. People that know you should not need an oath from you. Okay? There's a problem if people need you to swear oaths to them when they know you. It's a sign that you're very unreliable, right? (laughs) That you've got real problems. Well-fed faith looks like simple, honest reliability. Well-fed faith looks like faithfulness. Well-fed faith looks like your yes is yes and your no is no. You say, well, how does this relate to suffering? Well, hardship, guys, tempts us to be unfaithful to each other, doesn't it? 
in big ways and in little ways. When we're suffering, we get tempted to not be faithful to each other. In our promises that we make to one another, sometimes there's suffering involved in keeping them, right? You thought it would be easy. You made a promise. You find out later it wasn't easy to keep that promise. You keep it anyway. The Psalms say this, Psalm 15, 4 says that the righteous person keeps their promises even to their own hurt. Isn't that interesting? That's one that's an important one, right? Psalm 15, 4. The righteous keep their promises even when it hurts. And in our culture, guys, we are dealing with a bit of a crisis of faithfulness, aren't we? In big ways and in small ways. I'll give you a funnier, smaller one. I don't know if it's funny, but you'll think it's funny. Which is small things like breaking our commitments. How commonly do you make plans with somebody and then you get a text message, you know, about 45 minutes before, hey, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And you're like, okay, does that mean you're not going to make it? And then like, you know, 15 minutes later, hey, I'm not going to make it, right? And, and we do this a lot in our culture because it's so easy to do. You used to have to like call them or, well, the way you used to have to do is you call their house and it was an answering machine. You left a message, I don't know if I'm going to make it. You hope they'd go and check their answering machine. And then they would get that, and then they would call you, and hopefully you're at home. If not, they leave a message. How did we do this? It's crazy. It's like insane. How did we ever? Well, it was a lot harder to break your plans. So I'm going to meet you at the movies. An hour before, I'm like, you know, I'm an introvert. I kind of want to be at home and just kind of like rub my own shoulders and kind of take care of myself. And then what do you do? Like, well, the guy's probably left. Like, I can't call and leave a message on his answering machine because he probably won't get it, and, right? This is the 90s, guys. I know you, some of you weren't there. I was there. So um, the 90s are like that, right? But now it's so easy, and, and there's an epidemic, guys, of flakiness, right? I think we need to consider that. Like, do we keep our word? Because, you know, sometimes what we find is that, you know, the suffering involved in not keeping that plan is like you don't feel like it. It's very low level of suffering. Okay, that's a low-level one. Big one would be unfaithfulness to marriage covenants. Okay, so you have like two extremes. The other extreme would be an unfaithfulness to a marriage covenant, right? That's a promise that's hard to keep. There's a lot of suffering involved in that promise, right? You know, people talk about like, you know, hey, what's going on? Well, you just fell out of love. I fell out of love. And I'm like, so what? I know that sounds heretical in our culture, Right? The commitment, the covenant was to bind you together while you're out of love. So you can get in love later. But it's to hold you in there, right? It's a permanent thing to hold you in there. And you're very unhappy with each other and don't enjoy each other and aren't having a good time. And life's, you know, awful. And it's real suffering. And we're going to feed that faith with future grace and past grace. And we're going to continue. We're going to try and make it better. We're obviously not going to just torture each other for no reason for the rest of our lives. But the covenant is to say, I'm not going anywhere. I can't go anywhere. So I need to work this out, right? And what we see in our culture is just an epidemic of unfaithfulness in that. And I just say to you this morning, I do care if you've fallen out of love. I just don't think that it's any kind of a reasonable reason to, to leave your spouse, right? I do care. And I would say if it's hard right now, to stay faithful, what you need to do is feed that faith. You need to feed that faith. And you feed that faith, the more that faith is fed, the more there's going to be resources for you to love your spouse and, and to get through it. And that's what the covenant's for. Covenant's to keep you when you don't feel like it. That's the whole point of the thing, 
right? Your faith needs to be fed. So this morning, let's just think about that. Let's think about, do I have habits in my daily life throughout the week? Think about this week coming, week before. Do I have habits to feed my faith on past and future grace? Or does my faith just look like, kind of like, you know, it's a live hamster, but it's not doing well. It's not doing well because I haven't fed it in days. I feed it every Sunday. That's not, not going to run on the wheel and be happy. It's only fed on Sundays, right? Your faith needs to be fed. And the main way that our faith is fed, guys, and I think this is so helpful, is by seeing the faithfulness of God, right? We become the people who are faithful to our promises to each other, people who keep our promises even to our own hurt, as we see that God keeps his promises to us even to his own hurt. I mean, God's the best example of Psalm 15, 4 who keeps his promises even to his own hurt. And that's what we see in the Lord's Supper. We see in the Lord's Supper that God has been faithful to keep his promises to us even to his own hurt. All this grace, guys, is free to us, but it wasn't free to him. It wasn't free to God. This morning we see a graphic reason in the Lord's Supper. We see a graphic reason to trust God in our suffering. As Jesus says to you this morning through the elements, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Or as you take the cup and you hear Jesus say, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. Take this in remembrance of me. Jesus, guys, we rejoice in the fact that he's cleansed us all. Everyone in this room that's trusting in Christ, repent of your sin and trust in Christ, everyone in this room that's trusting in Christ has been cleansed of all of our unfaithfulness. Isn't that amazing? All of our unfaithfulness. And not only that, but our record before the Father is Jesus' perfect faithfulness. Think about Jesus' perfect faithful life. That's what God sees in your life. And the cross, guys, is a beautiful illustration of how God can make suffering fruitful. He can make suffering speak. And he can reverse it. Those three points, those three future graces. We see all of that in the cross, don't we? No suffering has ever been as fruitful as the cross right? He, if he can turn that into the most amazing gift ever, if he can turn that darkest moment into the best event ever, God knows how to change your suffering into good. I mean, that was the ultimate case, right? It also shows us that God can make suffering speak, right? No suffering ever spoke as loudly of God's love than the cross, as when you look at the cross, I mean, as Romans 8 says, if he did not spare his own son for you, how will he not graciously give you all things? How will he not graciously give it? Oh, how God loves you. And we know from the cross also that God knows how to reverse suffering. If he raised Jesus from the dead, he can resurrect your life, and he, and he can reverse all of your suffering. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, the Spirit actually gives us the ability this morning to feed on the presence of Christ. And so as you take the bread and you take the cup, it's an opportunity for us to have our faith fed. And it's an opportunity, guys, too, for us to celebrate the fact that Christ is coming soon to remove all suffering. He says, do this in remembrance of me. He says, do this till I come again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we, I mean, we're going to suffer either way, Lord. I mean, being in this life will be suffering. And yet you have so profoundly dealt with suffering. We thank you, Lord, for the redemption of it, the things you're doing through it, the way you're speaking through it, the way you're going to reverse it. 
Father, you're so good to us. We're sinners. We've had no interest in you. We've turned our backs on you so many times, and yet you sent your own son to pay the penalty for our sins and to redeem all suffering. We just thank you for that, Lord. We pray, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would feed us in it as you fed us in your word. Jesus, we pray, stay with us. Be our companion on the way. Kindle our hearts and awaken our hope that we may know you as you're revealed in the word and in the breaking of the spread. We pray that you'd grant this for your sake and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.